0: In my mind, I was thinking, you do this, and they take you and they put you in lock under investigation to investigate it because normally you go to lock under investigation. No one wants to go back there and be locked in a room, everything stripped from you because you reported that something has happened. It's almost like a trade-out. If you don't tell us exactly what happened, you're going to go back here and we'll put you in a lock while we investigate the situation. And in my mind, I'm thinking, God, I don't want to go back there. I want to
1: go to Madison. I want out of this prison.
0: Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond.
2: Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls.
0: Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. The Texas
3: Department of Criminal Justice has a list of books banned for prisoners that's over 10,000 titles long. Among the banned books are The Color Purple, Freakonomics, and Monty Python's Big Red Book. Also forbidden is a collection of Shakespeare sonnets. The books that the department permits prisoners to read include Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf and two by former Ku Klux Klan grand wizard David Duke. What books are allowable or not in Texas prisons is decided mostly by mailroom staff. Some of the criteria the staff uses to categorize books involve content and imagery, Many books are banned because the staff thinks that their bindings or covers could be used to smuggle contraband. When asked about the Duke and Hitler books, a Department of Corrections spokesperson told the Dallas Morning News that they conform to state guidelines and don't violate prison rules.
1: States Coast Guard has been detaining captives off the Pacific Coast of Latin America for as much as three months at a time. The Coast Guard was deployed to this region as part of the so-called War on Drugs under the direction of former State Department Southern Command Chief and current White House Chief of Staff John Kelly. According to the report, the Coast Guard has been detaining people on its cutters for months at a time, shackled and deprived of basic amenities such as bathrooms. These detainees are often eventually sent to Miami, where they face criminal charges. The Coast Guard claims its practice of indefinite detention is justified, as its captives are not technically under arrest until they are on U.S. soil, and therefore are not privileged to legal protection. Seth Fried Wessler, who originally reported this story, states, "...this is a practice of detention that until now hasn't really been known." I wrote to dozens of men and received letters back from many of these men who'd been detained on these Coast Guard ships, describing the conditions of their confinement, describing what sounded to me like real terror for them on the high seas. Those are stories that hadn't been told before.
2: As the holidays draw close, we know that it's time to give the gift of noise. In dozens of cities around the world, people gather each New Year's Eve to ring in midnight with a noise demonstration outside a jail or prison. These noise demos break the isolation of imprisonment and bring a bit of the festivities inside the walls. Most people who participated in a noise demo have heard the powerful response of prisoners banging on the windows in rhythm with the drums, pots and pans, sound system, or chanting outside. The tradition started outside Korydalis prison in Athens, Greece, but has spread widely. This will be the eighth year of prisoners and outside supporters celebrating together in Bloomington.
1: According to a communique received by the Gainesville Chapter of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee and the Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons, thousands of inmates intend to begin a work stoppage across Florida prisons. Set to begin on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, January 15, the organizers, who call themselves Operation Push, are demanding payment for their labor, an end to price gouging in commissaries, and re-establishing parole incentives. Secondary demands include an end to overcrowding exposure of the toxic environmental conditions in the prisons, a moratorium on executions, and the right to vote. Quote, our goal is to make the governor realize that it will cost the state of Florida millions of dollars daily to contract outside companies to come and cook, clean, and handle the maintenance. This will cause a total breakdown.
0: Keith Washington, who we heard from in our Toxic in Texas episode, wrote us with the following statement. Greetings, everyone. I'm very sad to report that my next-door neighbor, Benjamin LaRue, aka Ben, committed suicide last night here at Easton. Ben was a very young white male, maybe 24, 25 years old. He only had a three-year sentence, and now he's gone. Needless to say, I'm very upset, because I saw the signs of depression and I failed to act. He just had a visit yesterday. I thought he was okay, and I was wrong. The officer on duty was not doing his security checks. I will be writing a detailed essay about his death. Once again, I am pleading for a visit. I need to talk to someone who really cares about human beings. These people neglected Ben. They knew he was troubled, and they ignored him. No matter what TDCJ says, ADSEG is still a form of solitary confinement and is no place for anyone, but especially for those who have been diagnosed with a mental illness. Eastham ADSEG unit is a torture and abuse camp. Although I may sound upset, I am strong and my resolve to expose and fight against abuse and injustice is strengthened. His name was Benjamin LaRue and his life mattered. In solidarity, Keith Malik Washington.
4: According to Frontlines of Justice, Guantanamo prisoners create artwork to help them retain their humanity under extremely inhumane conditions. They've released their art to the public for many years with no problems. In fact, detainee artwork is part of the current exhibit Ode to the Sea at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. The exhibit has attracted significant media attention, but now the U.S. military has announced that it will cease allowing any artwork to be released from the prison. According to media reports, at one point the government even considered burning it. Now the military says it won't burn, but will archive the artwork. One detainee artist has commented, quote, For many years, we, Guantanamo prisoners, were pictured by many U.S. government officials as monsters, the worst of the worst. Displaying the artwork is a way to show people that we have feelings, are creative, and are normal people and not monsters." The
2: Guardian reports that Australia is forcing refugees imprisoned on Nauru to renounce their families and apply as individuals for resettlement in the U.S. under the recent refugee swap deal. This violates the UN's agreement against permanent family separation. The case of Arash Shir Mohammed has drawn particular attention since he refused to sign a form conceding his right to see his wife and baby daughter who live in Australia. Listen to KiteLine episodes 31 through 33 to learn about the plight of refugees held in island prison camps hundreds of miles from the Australian mainland.
0: We just received this update from IDOC Watch. write, During the summer, James Phillips, number 106333, an inmate at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, was attacked and badly beaten by other prisoners. After the attack, Wabash Valley Correctional Facility officials placed him in disciplinary segregation, which is solitary confinement 23 hours a day, he was beaten in segregation for the past several months and recently told an IDOC Watch member that he was concerned that the administration was retaliating against him for not giving information on his attackers because they had not told him where he'd be placed after being moved out of segregation, which was supposed to happen last week. Of course, James knows that if he were to give the authorities information on his attackers, he could expect further attacks. So prison officials have put have been an impossible and dangerous situation where one option is indefinite solitary confinement and the other a potentially deadly retaliation. Yesterday we received word from a friend of James's that officials had attempted to place him back on the same unit where he was attacked where people who had attacked him remained. When James refused to return there out of fear for his safety, staff charged him with a Class C conduct violation, confiscated his TV and property box, put him back in segregation, and removed IDOC watch advocates from his approved call list. IDOC Watch says that people can call the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility Superintendent Richard Brown, Indiana Department of Corrections IDOC Central Office, and Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb to demand James be returned to a general population unit where he doesn't have to fear for his safety or transferred to a different facility. They also say that you can demand that his property be returned and IDOC Watch Advocate's numbers return to his approved calling list. A sample script and more information can be found on the IDOC Watch website. This week features our second segment on PREA, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Last week, we heard from Irene, who is being held in the Indiana Women's Prison. Irene described her run-ins with PREA, leading to a broader analysis of the failure of prison bureaucracies to meaningfully respond to real abuse. At the same time, she shows how these bureaucracies use PREA to police and prevent even platonic consensual contact between female prisoners. We encourage you to listen to Irene in last week's episode, which you can find on our website. The Prison Rape Elimination Act was passed into law on September 4, 2003. According to the text of the act, its purposes are to establish zero-tolerance standards for the incidence of prison rape in prisons in the United States, make the prevention of prison rape a top priority in each prison system, Develop and implement national standards for the detection, prevention, reduction, and punishment of prison rape. Increase the available data and information on the incidence of prison rape, consequently improving the management and administration of correctional facilities. Standardize the definitions used for collecting data on the incidence of prison rape. Increase the accountability of prison officials who fail to detect, prevent, reduce, and punish prison rape. Protect the Eighth Amendment rights of federal, state, and local prisoners. Increase the efficiency and effectiveness of federal expenditures through grant programs such as those dealing with health care, mental health care, disease prevention, crime prevention, investigation and prosecution, prison construction, maintenance and operation, race relations, poverty, unemployment, and homelessness. And finally, reduce the costs that prison rape imposes on interstate commerce. The act was the first federal law passed dealing with the sexual assault of prisoners. The act was passed by both houses of the U.S. Congress and subsequently signed by President George W. Bush in a White House ceremony on September 4, 2003. The act aimed to curb prison rape through a quote-unquote zero-tolerance policy, as well as thorough research and information gathering. The act called for developing national standards to prevent incidents of sexual violence in prison. It also made policies more available and obvious. By making data on prison rape more available to the prison administrators, as well as making corrections facilities more accountable for incidents pertaining to sexual violence and of prison rape, it would be more likely to decrease the crimes. PRIA covers juvenile detention facilities, as well as adult ones, plus all federal immigration detention centers. One of its major components was the establishment of the National Prison Rape Reduction Commission, charged with undertaking a study of the comprehensive effects of prison rape and its occurrences. Congress, within the text of PREA, conservatively estimates that at least 13% of inmates in the U.S. have been sexually assaulted in prison. The total number of inmates who've been sexually assaulted in the 20 years before the passage of PREA probably exceeds 1 million. Robert Weisberg, with co-author David Mills, argued in Slate in October 2003 that Priya did little more than collect data. Writing in the Huffington Post, Mike Farrell said, quote, The Prison Rape Elimination Commission meets periodically to study the impact of prisoner rape. While they study, rape continues, NPR reported, all states have to put the new standards into place, including things like training staff to stop sexual assaults and report them properly, and providing victims with rape kits and counseling. Then states have to pass an audit. If they don't pass, or if they don't want to go through the audit, they will lose 5% of their federal prison grant funding. Statistically, half of adult inmates who report being victimized say they are victimized by staff. A 2015 story in the New York Times says, The most recent national inmate survey by the Department of Justice found that sexual victimization was reported by 3.1% of heterosexual prisoners, 14% of gay, lesbian, and bisexual prisoners, and 40% of transgender inmates. Up next, we have a passage from Victoria Law's book, Resistance Behind Bars, dealing specifically with Priya and its impact on female inmates. Technically, it's legal. Legislation against sexual
5: abuse. Criminalization has done little to ameliorate the problem of sexual abuse in women's facilities. In Ohio, sexual activity between prisoners and prison employees is considered sexual battery. Under Ohio state law, employees face a third-degree felony charge punishable with one to five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. The law has not deterred dozens of employees who have been fired but not prosecuted for sexual activity with prisoners. In 1996, the New York State Legislature changed its penal law to make any sexual contact between a prisoner and prison employee non-consensual. Legislators cited Bedford Hills as only one example of a state correctional facility for women where female prisoners have been and continue to be impregnated by employees of such facilities. The state's Department of Correctional Services even advocated for this change because of the prevalence of sexual abuse by staff. However, despite this criminalization, sexual abuse remains widespread enough that in 2003, women in several New York State prisons, including Chanel Smith, attempted to file a class-action lawsuit about the sexual harassment and assault they suffered at the hands of prison staff. In addition, legislation has not offered protection for women who do not complain. When Oregon became the 49th state to outlaw sex between prisoners and staff in 2005, prisoner Barrelly Bannister commented, I think it's great DOC supports stiffer penalties, but what good will it do if this stuff doesn't get reported? In 2003, President Bush signed the Prison Rape Elimination Act, PREA, into law. The act, the federal government's first attempt to legally address prison rape, called for the gathering of national statistics about prison rape, the development of guidelines for states on how to address prisoner rape, the creation of a review panel to hold at annual hearings, and the provision of grants to states to combat the problem. In the first nationwide study conducted under the PRIA, 152 male and female prisoners nationwide were interviewed. However, all of the case scenarios focused solely on prisoner-on-prisoner assaults in male prisons. The ensuing report did not even mention the existence of women in prison, much less sexual abuse by staff in female facilities. Not only does the PREA neglect the situation specific to women in prison, but it has also had adverse effects on women who attempt to alleviate the isolation of incarceration by forming intimate relationships with their fellow prisoners. Prison rules penalize women for any physical contact. Keep in mind, even hand-holding is considered sexual contact here, reminded Dawn Riser, a woman in prison in Texas. It doesn't have to be sexually intimate touch to get labeled as sex here. Dawn Amos has noted an increase in write-ups for sexual misconduct since the act was passed. Women are more open with their relationships than men are, she stated. Now the DOC has changed sexual misconduct to sexual abuse because of the Prison Rape Elimination Act. While the PRIA has the potential to reduce the prevalence of rape in male facilities, it clearly did not take gender differences into account. Thus, women are punished for consensual relationships with one another, sometimes leading to devastating results. One morning, while waiting online for breakfast, RJ and her friend forgot that rule. I admit, we acted totally stupid. We just weren't thinking about where we were. She put her hands on me and the CO was out there counting us. She saw it and took it to be sexual misconduct. Both women were sent to segregation pending investigation. Both received write-ups for complicity in sexual abuse. My friend was set to leave on Friday, two days later, for treatment, R.J. recalled. The write-up meant that she would not be leaving then. The write-up would also affect R.J.'s chances of an early release in the future. R.J.'s experience illuminates how easily a woman can be charged with sexual abuse, often for actions that would warrant little to no attention on the outside. Fortunately, because both women had exemplary records and were liked by several staff members, the administration dropped the charges. In the beginning, I was especially questioned as to whether I played a consensual willing role. I could have said that I was not willing and gotten out of it altogether, which I would never consider, R.J. remembered. Had she done so, the charges against her friend would have been more severe. Unfortunately, when faced with the prospect of additional charges, more time, and a possible sex offender label, not every woman is as principled. In March 2008, Two women who had been involved in a consensual relationship at the Denver Women's Correctional Facility were sent to segregation for sexual misconduct. To avoid a charge of sexual abuse and a lifetime sexual offender label, one of the women claimed that the other had raped her. When her girlfriend learned this, she hung herself. Ever since the feds enacted that Prison Rape Elimination Act, it has done nothing to help us women. Now someone is dead. With her girl crying rape to save herself from being convicted of a sexual abuse charge, it leaves Jamie with a sexual assault charge and having to register as a sex offender when she gets out, and it'll be on her record, affecting her parole chances and chances of getting into a halfway house. Don Amos, who had been a close friend of the woman who committed suicide. That pre-law does nothing for women. I think it's good for men, but just the men.
3: Amber Bray, who is held captive in Chowchilla, California said there are posters all over the prison, in English and Spanish, talking about the Priya bill, but no one really knows any details about it. She is aware of one aspect of Priya that she personally finds disturbing. She says it is completely misused by prisoners. If one prisoner claims she or he has been sexually assaulted by another prisoner, the one named as the perpetrator is placed in administrative segregation. That would be helpful in the cases where an assault has transpired. However, in most instances, no assault has occurred and people claim one has for retribution or vindictiveness, knowing the person they are accusing will be sent to the prison's version of jail.
0: Strawberry Hampton, a transgender woman imprisoned in Illinois, sued for relief in federal court following years of harassment and torture at the hands of guards. While held in Pickneyville Correctional Center, she was forced to strip and perform sexual acts with other prisoners for the entertainment of guards. Guards refused to acknowledge her gender, referring to her as a man and subjecting her to transphobic insults. When she complained, she was sent to solitary and she was denied access for food for long stretches of time. She eventually lost 35 pounds of body weight. She was subjected to retaliatory beatings. The MacArthur Justice Center received testimony from other prisoners regarding beatings suffered by Ms. Hampton with one writing, I heard offender Hampton yell out multiple times. Quote, Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. I'm not resisting. Please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. The CO shouted, "Shut up, you! F- this is what happens when you call Priya." Miss Hampton has now been transferred to Menard Prison, the site of habitual violence and repression by guards as well as ongoing insurgency by prisoners. She's been thrown into long-term solitary confinement until at least April 2018. Her lawyers hope to move her to a women's prison and have also filed charges against the guards under Illinois' hate crime law.
2: Jennifer Wedkin writes that, Additionally, an inmate complaint will rarely result in legal sanctions for the perpetrator or prison authorities, despite the fact that the Supreme Court has held that placing an inmate at risk of sexual assault with deliberate indifference can be a violation of the Eighth Amendment. The main obstacle between inmates and a courtroom is the 1996 Prison Litigation Reform Act, or PLRA. Congress passed the PLRA in an effort to prevent quote-unquote frivolous inmate lawsuits and created considerable hurdles that an inmate must overcome to see his or her day in court. Significantly, any regulations passed under PRIA will have to be in compliance with the PLRA, which may hamper its effectiveness in some areas. She writes that in cases of sexual assault, inmates are most often stymied by two PLRA requirements—an exhaustion of all administrative remedies and a showing of physical harm. If a prisoner fails to comply with the technical and often arbitrary requirements of the administrative procedures, or if the inmate misses one of the filing deadlines, which may be as short as 48 hours, his or her right to sue is forever forfeited. Cases are frequently dismissed because of technical errors, because the wrong form was used, or because the complaint was submitted to the wrong entity within the prison system. In a 2003 case, Human Rights Watch reported that 16 female inmates filed suits alleging systematic sexual abuse by prison staff, including forcible rape, coerced sexual activity, oral and anal sodomy, and forced pregnancies. The federal court hearing the case refused to address the merits, Instead, taking nearly five years to conclude that the women's use of informal reporting procedures, provided by the prison, resulted in a failure to adequately exhaust all administrative remedies. The PLRA also requires a showing of physical injury, and many jurisdictions do not consider a sexual assault to constitute a physical injury per se. This provision, in particular, is frequently relied upon to dismiss claims by victims of sexual assault who frequently have no proof of physical injury due to delay in reporting, lack of additional violence during the assault, or inadequate prison medical providers who often do not have the resources or willingness to administer a rape kit. Advocates hope the final pre regulations will provide more services for inmates and more accountability for prison administrators. However, while the regulations may be able to ease some of the administrative burdens currently on inmate victims, it will not provide a private cause of action and the PLRA will still dictate access to courts.
0: On March 2, 2015, The Nation reported that following the passage of the Prison Rape Elimination Act, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, BJS, an office within the Department of Justice, has conducted various surveys of inmates, former inmates, and incarcerated youths to calculate the number of prison rapes occurring annually. The BJS surveys conducted between 2011 and 2012 found that 32 people per 1,000 were sexually abused in jail, 40 people per 1,000 were sexually abused in prison, and 95 youths per 1,000 were sexually abused in juvenile detention facilities. In contrast, the National Crime Victimization Survey, also a product of the BJS, found that the rate of rape and sexual assault among free women was 1.3 per 1,000 females over the age of 12 in 2012, meaning that the prisoner's likelihood of becoming a victim of sexual assault is roughly 30 times higher than that of any given woman on the outside. Alan J. Beck, a senior statistician at BJS, confirmed to the New York Review of Books that nearly 200,000 people were sexually violated in American detention facilities in 2011. One of the persistent myths surrounding sexual violence inflicted upon prisoners is how the other inmates are chiefly responsible, according to the BJS. Inmates in federal prisons and local jails all reported greater rates of sexual victimization involving staff than other inmates. Despite all this, sexual assaults that take place within prisons are generally not factored into national crime statistics, as if they are somehow expected.
3: One currently incarcerated woman, Anastasia Schmidt, who has been on previous episodes of Kite Line, wrote to us saying, It is a ludicrous idea. First of all, we have to watch the video about it. I was appalled when I saw it and that there isn't a single woman in the entire video. It is all men, in men's prisons, discussing the issue and problem from their standpoint. How typical that no one gives a damn about the fact that this is a reality for nearly every woman in prison, if not while they are here, certainly beforehand. That is my argument. No one gave a about that happening to me or my child prior to my incarceration. Why ask now?
0: Anastasia has authored a zine called Shackled Sex, which deals with the restriction and shame enforced on any physical contact between inmates. She writes about the way these no-touch rules criminalize affection and sexuality as a blatant suppression of female identity and expression. A free digital copy of the zine will be available on our website. In a report submitted by Human Rights Watch to the UN Committee Against Torture, the organization said, quote, The Federal Prison Rape Elimination Act, PRIA, was enacted to help combat sexual assault in confinement facilities. A landmark piece of legislation designed to prevent, detect, and respond to sexual assault in confinement facilities, PRIA has yet to be fully implemented. State governors have only been required to designate whether their state was compliant with PRIA. Six states, comprising 20% of the U.S. population, have refused to comply with PREA. Arizona, Florida, Idaho, Indiana, Texas, and Utah. Recently, the U.S. Congress indicated that it may weaken PREA even further. Korea is constructed to elicit state compliance by holding back 5% of the federal grant funds used for prison purposes from states that refuse to comply. However, the Senate Judiciary Committee unanimously passed an amendment that would virtually eliminate the compliance mechanism by protecting several large federal grants from being held back. In 2015, The Atlantic reported, quote, But like many ambitious pieces of legislation, its promises proved difficult to realize. The law required studies of the problem that took far longer than initially intended, and adoption of the guidelines they produced has been painfully slow, resting on the competence and dedication of particular employees." Unquote. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at KiteLineRadio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.